Acts chapter 12. The title of the message today is Unstoppable God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you, God, that you have made a way for us to be able to enter into your presence because Jesus came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves, that he made a way for us who were lost to be reconciled to you and brought near to you. And God, we thank you for your word and its power to teach us and transform us. And we pray today that your word would just have its way in our hearts and lives. And so we give you this time today now in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Have you ever felt like you have just hit the wall and you are stuck? Perhaps you are overwhelmed by problems with in your friendship group or problems within your family or problems with with a child or problems with the work. Maybe you're just feeling overwhelmed by the pressures of life. The economy, you walk out of the grocery store with that bill in your hand and it's just overwhelming, right? How much things cost these days. Well, if you are experiencing any of that today, this study is for you because we're going to be reminded today that our God is an unstoppable God. He's a God who does the impossible, We've come as far as Acts chapter 12, and in our study thus far, we've seen the birth of the early church in Acts chapter 2. We've seen the gospel begin to spread and move throughout the, the Jewish world, into Judea, down into Samaria. We've seen some incredible conversions in our study here in the book of Acts. We saw in chapter 8 where Peter led to, or excuse me, Philip led to, to Christ, an Ethiopian leader who worked for the queen. We saw um, in Acts chapter 9, a Pharisee who was out to utterly destroy the Christian church and all the followers of Jesus get radically brought to Jesus on the road to Damascus. The, The man's name was Saul of Tarsus. We'll come to know him very shortly in the book of Acts as Paul the Apostle. We saw in Acts chapter 10 where a Roman soldier named Cornelius, who was a centurion, was converted to Christ. It happened when Peter went to where he lived, to his home there in Caesarea Philippi, and Peter preached Jesus to him and his family and friends, and they all believed, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And that particular moment was the start of this new work that God was going to be doing amongst the Gentiles. And we saw in our study last time that that God was choosing a new city. The city of Antioch would become the epicenter of this work that God would be doing throughout the Gentile world. And we're going to come back to Antioch in our study when we get to Acts chapter 13. But today we find ourselves back in Jerusalem, which has been the headquarters of the early church. And what we see here in Acts chapter 12 is that 
The evil of hell is about to become unleashed on the church, but we're going to see God intervene in a big-time way. Follow along as I begin to read in verse 1. It says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. And then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, and so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him. Intending to bring him before the people after Passover, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Pause there and give me your attention. So we see here in Acts chapter 12 a bleak scenario. Herod had James executed, and because it earned him some favor amongst the Jewish people, he proceeded to have Peter arrested also. Now, there's a lot of Herods in the Bible. Herod is more of a title, and the, the, the first Herod was known as Herod the Great, and Herod the Great was a great builder in Israel, but he was not a great person. If you go to Israel today, we're hoping to go take a trip in, in 2024, if you uh, might be praying about that, but, but you'll see some of the great um, remnants of, of the buildings, the, the structures that Herod built. In Caesarea, he built this uh, ginormous amphitheater that still sits there to this day. He built an aqueduct. It's an amazing feat. It's three miles long, and it was the water source that ran into the city. He built a palace there on the seashore. He built Masada, which is an amazing structure, on the top of this mountain where the Jews fled from the Romans for, for um, safety. He was an incredible builder, but as a person, he was a maniac. It was that Herod the Great who had all the babies when Jesus was born. He had all the babies killed in, in Bethlehem. It was, that was that Herod. Herod was married 10 times. He had 10 wives, but he killed several of them. He didn't just divorce them, he killed them, and he actually also killed some of his sons. In fact, in Rome, it was said that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be one of his kids. But his sons who did survive, he allowed them to rule in different regions, and all of them had the title of Herod. There was Herod Antipas, who ruled up in the northern region of Galilee. There was Herod Archelaus, who ruled in Judea and Samaria. And the Herod who is ruling here in Acts chapter 12 is actually Herod Agrippa I. This is the grandson of Herod the Great. Now, Herod Agrippa I spent some time in Rome growing up, and he knew Claudius, and it's Claudius who is this, the emperor in Rome at this particular time, and it was Claudius who gave Agrippa the title king, even though that was more, in reality, he was more of a governor, he really wasn't a king, but Agrippa knows that his whole job security amongst the Romans, because they're the ones in power, was to, to make sure that, that the Jews, that there were no 
pro-Jewish uprisings um, in Israel. So Agrippa was the ultimate man-pleaser. He wants to keep the Jewish people happy. And because the Jews in Jerusalem saw that the early church, this new move of Jesus follower, was a threat to their religion, Herod Agrippa, wanting to keep the Jewish leaders happy, decided to kill one of the leaders of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John. Those were the two that Jesus kind of nicknamed the sons of thunder. James was a prominent guy in the church. And we read in verse 3 that this pleased the Jews, that they were glad that he did that. So he followed that up by arresting Peter, and he's intending to execute Peter as well, but he wants to wait until after Passover. So James is dead. Peter is in prison. These are two of the key apostles. So this is a major crisis in the midst of the early church. So here's my question. What did the early church do in the midst of this crisis? Did they organize a protest and storm the palace? Nope, they didn't do that. Did they sign a petition? To free Peter. No, they didn't do that either. Did they conduct a sit-in and hold up signs that read, free Peter? They didn't do that as well. Did they write letters to Caesar demanding that Herod be removed? No. What did they do? Look at verse 5. It says that constant prayer was offered to God. So what can we learn today from the early church? What, what does their life teach us? There's three main points that I have today concerning what do we do in the midst of crisis? What do we learn from the early church? Number one, make prayer your first priority. It's been rightfully said that we can do more than pray, but we shouldn't do anything until we pray. Prayer should be, church, our first resort, not our last resort resort. You know, doors may close on earth, but there always remains an open door to the believer, and that's the door to heaven. And we access that door through prayer. It's been said, I don't know who said this, but I love this quote, the shortest distance between a problem and a solution is the distance between your knees and the floor. The one who kneels to the Lord can stand up to anything. So when you experience a crisis in your life, when you experience a a job loss, when your marriage seems like it's unraveling, when when you are experiencing and dealing with a, a prodigal son or daughter or an illness, whatever the crisis might be, what should you do? The Bible says that we need to pray. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And I love that Paul says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, because we're always looking for peace that comes with understanding, right? But he says, no, this is different. This is a peace that surpasses, like you don't even understand what's going on or what God is doing, but there's a peace that comes over you that guards your hearts and mind when you pray. 
Now, there's a couple things I want us to note about their prayers, the prayer here of the early church. If you're taking notes, the first is this, that when we pray, we need to focus on the bigness of our God and not the enormity of the situation. And I think we see this in the sense that it says, and they prayed to God. You see, we have to understand who it is that we are praying to, that we are praying to Almighty God, that there's nothing that we face that is too big for our God to handle. Remember when when the children of Israel were freed from Egypt, and they're going out there into their journey to the promised land, and they come to Kadesh Barnea. This was the doorway to the promised land. Remember how Moses sent the 12 spies in to go and spy out the land? And they come back with this report. And the report is is like, hey, this is everything God said it was going to be. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. The grapes are the size of basketballs. I mean, this place is incredible. But there's a problem. There are these giants in the land. There are these enormous men. And we can't take the land. They're too big for us. That was the report of 10 of the spies. Remember, there were two, Joshua and Caleb, who said, hey, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, there's some big guys in there, but we have a big God. They're like, these guys, they're not too big to hit. They're too big to miss. I mean, we need to go, you know? And it was Caleb who literally said, these giants, they're our bread. It's such an interesting statement because what he's saying is, these giants, if we we believe God, these giants are going to be the very thing that God uses to nourish our faith and build up our lives. But you know the story. The children of Israel, they listened to the 10 spies. They were afraid to go in. And they end up missing out on the victory and missing out on the problem because of their unbelief. Or remember when the armies of Israel were camped on one side of the Valley of Elah and the the Philistines were camped on the other side and down in the valley every single day for, for 40 times, twice a day, so 80 times, the giant, nine foot six Goliath, that's a big dude. He comes walking down into that valley and he says, send me a man. And if I defeat him, you'll be our servants. But if he defeats me, we'll be your servants. And no one in the army of Israel, including their king, wanted to go out and fight Goliath. They were all shaking in their sandals. But along comes David, this little shepherd boy, all of 15, on an errand from his dad. And he comes cruising up, and he hears Goliath spouting off, and he's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? How come no one wants to go out and fight him? I'll go out and fight him. And when David finally goes out to fight Goliath, what does he say? You come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the God of Israel. And today he's going to deliver you into my hand. Why did David have such a different perspective than all the other soldiers? Well, I think it was because scholars tell us that prior A couple of days or so before going up to the battle, David, who was a shepherd boy, and David is a psalmist, he's the one that wrote all the psalms, David's out with his sheep, and he writes Psalm 19 during that time. Let me read it to you. It should be on the screen. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God, 
and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech, and night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, there is no voice not heard. When all of the other people in the army of Israel were looking at the giant Goliath, David saw a giant God. And he moved in that perspective. He's out there with his sheep going, looking at the stars. And he's just like, God, you are so amazing. You're so incredible. You made all of this. And, and, and he writes that down. And this is what's on his mind when he comes to the battlefield. And he moves in that confidence of his God, believing in a giant God. Remember, Jesus said this in Matthew 21. He says, surely I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you can say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't in the excavation business. He had little interest in relocating a pile of rocks into the ocean. What he's saying here, he's speaking metaphorically when he talks about the mountain. He's basically saying the mountain is whatever stands in your path, whatever obstacle blocks your way, whatever difficulty immobilizes you, the prayer of faith can remove it. But first, the first thing we need to do, listen church, the first thing we need to do is to focus our to to shift our focus off of the enormity of the mountain. To take our focus off of the size of the mountain and put it on the sufficiency of our mountain mover. Can I get an amen to that? So the first thing we see here is they did that they prayed. They prayed to God. The second thing that I want you to notice about their prayer is that they prayed with passion and perseverance. Constant prayer speaks of persistent prayer. Remember, it was Jesus who said this in Acts or Matthew chapter 7, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now, what's interesting about that phrase, in the original language, it says this. It's in the present continuous sense. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. Why? Persistence is a sign of our dependency upon God. Persistence is when you come in your heart and you're saying, Lord, I believe that nothing is going to change in this situation that I'm in unless you do something. So I'm going to keep praying. Don't just ask once, and if God doesn't answer, then you're going to take matters into your own hands. So many of us, we're, we're so guilty of that, aren't we? No, we need to keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking. And you know what? God always answers prayer. He answers yes. We're excited about that. He answers no. We get bummed about that. And then sometimes he answers, in fact, a lot of times he answers wait. It's been said in this way, if the request is wrong, God says no. If the timing is wrong, God says slow. If you are wrong, God says grow. But if the request is right, the timing is right, and you are right, God says go. Go for it. 
But the word constant here can also be translated earnest. And it was that type of prayer that we see that Jesus prayed when he was in the garden there in Gethsemane. And it tells us that he sweat as it were drops of blood. He was praying on the night before he went to the cross, Lord, if there's any other cup, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And it was so intense. It was so passionate. It was a prayer of agony. He's sweating as it were drops of blood. This is what this word constant is also speaking of. And so I ask you this question. Question for all of us. Do do we pray with passion Or are our prayers often lackadaisical? Do we pray where it's like, uh, uh, Lord, um, I, uh," and we're just kind of fumbling through or we're rambling on. Guys, we need to remember who it is that we are talking to, that it's the almighty God. And we need to pray with passion. We need to pray with persistence. You know, we always see in the Bible that God always responds to the desperate heart. Now, when you're praying for a healing from an illness, this, I think, is the hardest thing. Because we pray, and we pray. I've done this many times. God, would you heal me? God, would you change this? God, would you? And sometimes you don't get the response. Or sometimes, like Paul the Apostle, remember, he prayed three times, And I don't think it was like just, you know, three times in one little sitting. I think it was like three times over the course of of the agony he was going through for this, what the Bible refers to as a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet him. And he prayed and he prayed and prayed, Lord, take it away. And then the Lord came and said, Paul, I'm not going to do that. Because through this difficulty, you're going to discover that my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. And sometimes that's how God responds. He says, you know, I'm allowing this in your life because it's going to cause you to trust more and lean more upon my sufficiency and seeking after me. So they prayed with passion. They prayed with persistence. The third thing I want you to note about their prayer is that they prayed together. Now, I want you to note this. The church at this time is like 10,000 people strong. There's a lot of believers there in um, Jerusalem. So it's obvious that they're not all praying, gathering together as a church. In fact, we're going to see they're praying in a house. So this is a group of the believers. We don't know how many were in that house, but but there's a group of them that are praying. It's like 24-7 prayer the church is doing because we're going to see in a minute that this is in the middle of the night. They're gathering together to pray. And I point this out because sometimes our mentality can be this. If I can't get the whole church, you know, to pray or the whole church to be involved in, you know, what I'm passionate about, then then I'm not I don't want to do anything. Get a group. Get a group of your friends. Get a group of your, your family members, because that's the church. When two are gathered together in his name, the Lord says, I'm there. And so this group is gathering together, and they're praying. They're seeking God. Now, what if we applied this to our lives, what we see the church doing? I'll give you an example. Let, let, let's say, you know, we, we hear that, that Joe 
has lost his job. And I'm not prophesying right now if your name is Joe. I'm not prophesying that, you know. But just figuratively speaking, let's say Joe has, we hear, oh, Joe lost his job this week. And then the next thing it says, but constant prayer was being offered by the church. We hear Brenda has been diagnosed with cancer, but constant prayer was being offered, being made by the church. Whatever your problem is, fill in the blank, but constant, and add this, but constant prayer was being made by the church. This is what our prayer chain is all about. That you email in or call in and it goes out to bunches of people on that list who are praying and, and we need to just faithfully pray and consistently pray. So they prayed to a big God. They were praying persistently and passionately. They were praying together. So we learn about their prayer life. And so in the midst of crisis, what's the first thing we see that they're doing? They made prayer their first priority. What's the second thing we need to do? We need to rest in the promises of God. Watch what happens next. We'll pick it up in verse 6. When Herod was about to bring him out, this is Peter, That night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. So there's two guards inside chained to him, two on the outside, but Peter is sleeping. How do you sleep in a situation like that? How do you sleep chained to two soldiers? How do you sleep when you know that you are going to be executed in a day or two? I believe that Peter was sleeping and resting in the Lord for two reasons. Number one, because the church was praying for him and the peace of God was coming over him. But I also believe that Peter was sleeping because Peter knew that he wasn't going to be executed. Why do you say that, Pastor Rob? Well, I say that because I think Peter is remembering a promise that Jesus made to him. It happened in John chapter 21, after the resurrection, Jesus meets with his disciples. And it's at this time he's going to commission Peter. But before he does, he says this to Peter. It'll be on the screen. Jesus says to Peter, most assuredly, I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked where you wish. But when you are old, everybody say old. You will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And then John adds this footnote. This he spoke signifying but by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now, what's interesting, when you read there in in John's account of this, Jesus makes this statement to Peter about how he's going to suffer and die. And this is Peter's response. He points at John and says, enough enough about me. What about him? What's going to happen to him? Don't we do that? Like, Lord, enough about me. Start working on them, you know? And Jesus looks at Peter and says, don't worry about John. Peter, you follow me. And I think that's a word today for somebody here. You've been focused on somebody else and God's saying, don't worry about them. You follow me. You trust in me. Well, it's interesting here. Jesus used some interesting language that Peter, I think, never forgot. Jesus said, when you are old, you are going to die in this way. And the way Peter ended up dying is he was crucified upside down. 
Now, it's only been 10 to 12 years from the birth of the early church. And when Jesus made that statement to Peter, Peter was in his early 30s. So now he's only in his, you know, 40s. And you've heard that 40 is the new 30, right? So, you know, Peter's in this place. And I think he's thinking, I'm not an old man. I don't need to, to worry about this because Jesus said that when I'm old, when I, when I can't direct myself, that's when they're going to come and get a hold of me. And Peter would end up dying when he was about 66 years old. So Peter's at rest. Peter's asleep because Jesus told him, you're not going to die until you're old. And so he's resting in the promise that Jesus made to him. What about us? What about you? Do you know we have promises that the Lord has made to us? In fact, one of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says this, For all, everybody say all. For all the promises of God are yes and amen in him, in Jesus, to the glory of God through us. All the promises of God are yes and amen. That means that they are certain in Christ. And here's the the, the great thing about that. You know where you are as a believer? This is what the Bible says about you. If you put your faith in Jesus, you are in Christ. And Paul says all the promises of God are yes and amen in him, in Jesus. And we are in Jesus. So those promises are applicable to us. How many promises? Well, one Bible scholar named Herbert Lockyer counted the promises in the Bible that God made to believers. And he counted over 7,000 promises that God made to us. Let me give you a couple. Jesus promises us protection. In Hebrews 13, 5, it says, For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Some of you have been thinking that the Lord has abandoned you, that he's forsaken you. Jesus promises that that will never happen. He promises never to leave us or forsake us. We have the promise of provision in Philippians 4.19. It says, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, the key word in that verse is needs, not wants. That's where a lot of us get messed up all the time. We get focused on our wants instead of our needs. Or how about this promise of assurance in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Guys, we need to rest in the promises of God. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah 26.3 that says this, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Perfect peace. It was J. Oswald Sanders who said, Peace is not the absence of trouble, it is the presence of God. And Peter is living in the presence of God by resting in the promise of Jesus. So the church is praying, Peter is resting, he's sleeping. Watch what happens next, verse 7. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. 
This is interesting to me. Peter's a heavy sleeper. I mean, this angel comes, the prison's lit up, and he doesn't wake up. I don't know about you. I'm a light sleeper. When daylight comes, I wake up. If somebody turns on the light, I wake up. Peter's a heavy sleeper. This angelic light shows up in the cell. He doesn't wake up. But notice what it says next. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up. I love that. It's like he gives him a little jab, like, hey, wake up saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off of his hands. And then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. In other words, get dressed, because we're getting out of here. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. Verse 9, And so when he had went out and followed him and did not know what was done by the angel was real, he's, but he thought it was he was seeing a vision. I mean, he's like thinking he's in a dream. But when they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. Don't you love that? The first automatic gate opener right here. (laughs) And they went out and went down one street and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, so now he's fully conscious, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from the expectation of the Jewish people. And this leads us to our third principle. What do you do in the midst of a crisis? Listen, when God does the impossible, you do the possible. When God does the impossible, You do the possible. When God does the extraordinary, he expects us to do the ordinary. It took a miracle to get Peter out of the prison, but Peter had to walk through the prison doors. God could have just transported him, couldn't he? He God could do that. God could have just said, hey, you know, you're here, and now you're in front of the house where everybody's praying, but he didn't do that. Peter had to walk. In the same way, when the children of Israel were being delivered from Egypt and they come there to the Red Sea and they're boxed in and here comes the army of Pharaoh behind them. Remember what God did? God parts the water, but they had to walk through. They had to walk through. God could have, again, he could have transported them the other side. He could have made that, that sea a, a, a gap between or an obstacle between them and the, the Egyptians. But no, God parts the water. He does the miracle. He does the extraordinary. But they had to do the ordinary. They had to walk through. And so we see Peter. God gets him out of prison. The prayers of the church worked. It was Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, who said this. The angel fetched Peter out of the prison, but prayer fetched the angel. I love that. Verse 12. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying And as Peter knocked on the the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came in to answer. And so she says, who's there? And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced Peter and stood that Peter stood before the gate. Now, Now, this is funny. She leaves Peter out in the cold. She runs in where everybody's praying, and she's like, hey, everybody, like interrupts the prayer, and she's all excited. Peter's outside. It's a miracle. Look at verse 15, how they respond. They said, you are beside yourself. The New Living Translation puts it, puts it this way. You are out of your mind. 
girl, you're nuts. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. She doesn't back down. So then they say, oh, it's his angel. That's who's out there. This is hilarious to me. It was easier to get Peter out of the jail than it was to get him into the prayer meeting. (laughs) Right? This is classic. Think about this. Continual prayer is being offered. They're praying constantly. 24-7 prayer is happening. This is the night crew that's gathered together to pray. But I'm not sure that they were really praying, believing that God was going to answer. How often do we do that? But here's what I love. God doesn't hold that against them. Their faith was small. And yet God moved. Verse 16. Now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. They're like freaking out. This is amazing. The answer to their prayer is standing right in front of them. And they didn't believe it. And I wonder, I wonder if today the answer to your prayer might be standing right in front of you. And God's just saying, look, You just need to take that step of faith. You just need to move and go through that opportunity. So they're freaking out, and verse 17 says, but motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, go tell these things to James. Now, this is the other James. This is the half-brother of Jesus, who was also a leader in the church, and to the brethren, and he departed and went to another place. And then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. No small stir means that the the soldiers were freaking out. They were shaking in their boots because they knew that if they lost a prisoner, they could be executed. That's exactly what happens. Verse 19 says, but when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined, he questioned the guards, what happened? And then commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Samaria and stayed there. Amazing story of God moving and working. Unstoppable God doing the impossible. And I want to just speak for a minute to anybody here that maybe you're not a follower of Jesus or somebody watching online who's not a follower of Jesus. Because the Bible says this about us when we, prior to giving our lives to Jesus, that we are in bondage to our sin. That we are chained in our sin. That we are bound by our sin, and it's our sin that separates us from God. It's our sin, the fact that we've disobeyed God and rebelled against God and haven't followed God, that that has us chained and bound like Peter was bound. But I want you to know this. Jesus did the impossible. Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves. There was nothing that any of us could do to make ourselves right with God. No amount of works. Nothing that we could do to change our standing. It was impossible. We were doomed and damned, but Jesus did the impossible. Jesus left heaven and came to the cross and died in our place and took the pain and he took the punishment. He took the shame that was upon us and the punishment that we deserved. And then three days later, he rose again from the dead 
to give life to anyone who would embrace what he did for them on the cross, that they could receive salvation, that they could be reconciled to God, that they could have the hope of heaven. And if you haven't opened up your heart to Jesus today, or if you're a prodigal here and you've walked away from God, I want to encourage you right now, God is saying to you, hey, I did the impossible, but you need to do the possible. And the possible is to believe, to embrace, to open up your heart. And if you do, Jesus is going to forgive you and touch you, and he's going to heal you, and he's going to do a work of cleansing your sin and making you right with God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you, God, for just how you move and work in our lives. We thank you, Jesus, that you did the impossible, that you left heaven and came to this earth so that sinners like us could be set free. And Lord, I thank you that this room is full of former prisoners. People who have been set free from drug addiction and alcohol addiction and bitterness and life of misery. And Lord, I pray for anybody here today who has yet to experience the freedom that you offer. And so if you're here today and you have never given your heart to Jesus, or you're watching online, you've never given your heart to Jesus. And today you want to open up your heart. You want to experience his love and his forgiveness. You want to be reconciled to God. You want to be set free. I'm going to invite you just right now in the quietness of your heart to repeat this prayer after me. Say, dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. That I need a Savior. And so I'm asking you today to forgive me of my sin, to cleanse me, to come into my heart and make my heart your home. From this day forward, I want to follow you. I want to live for you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for receiving me. Thank you for making me your child. 